Lord Jesus, when the heralding angel came and announced your coming, that moment, Father, that we celebrated so, so just a week ago, he said that he came to bring us good tidings of a great joy. He came to announce that there was good news, that there was, there was a happy ending to stories that often seem so sad. He said that there was a Savior that had come, who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. That all of the longing hearts who had cried, O come, O come, Emmanuel, for so long, were finally going to be fulfilled in that space. But then, Father, the whole... The angel came and said that that one that would come was to be born in a barn and that those shepherds would find him in a feed trough, wrapped in poverty. And so, Father, we have come here to wonder at what you have done. Because quite honestly, we don't understand why you came that way. We have unfortunately been wrapped up so much in what our culture has told us Christmas is about that we have forgotten that the essence of why you came was poverty. Poverty of soul. Poverty of checkbooks. Father, you have come to those who are woefully needy. And Father, we would all confess inside of our hearts that There are spaces that are there that we would be ashamed to tell anyone else if they could look and see how much discouragement was really there. And yet we've come. Here we are among these people, among your church, this place where we believe you told us to gather because there's something here. There is something in the word that we need. There is something in the lifting of our voices to you in praise that we need to do. And there is something in the Holy Spirit that falls upon this place that does all the things that we can't do, that convicts those hardened places in our souls that we've grown cold and don't really even want to talk about or think about anymore. He comes and He binds up those wounded places from the hearts of those who have experienced what so many experience during this time. And that is the sadness of the holidays. Father, He comes to encourage the lonely. The Holy Spirit comes to be near to those who have been wounded and are sad and ache for a redemption. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that You would fall upon this place and minister to us and hear our cries, Father, our cries for help. As, Lord, we come and offer up even to You the the needs of this body. Lord, we're asking for Rusty McKinley. We're asking that you would bring a great healing in his life. Father, that the infection that invades his body now would somehow be healed. We don't even know how to ask for those kinds of things. But we know that you are the great physician, and so we have no one else that we can appeal to, as we do for little Aubrey Brown. Father, we are, we are helpless before such helplessness. And so we ask for wisdom for the doctors. We ask for strength for the parents. We ask for encouragement from us. We ask for all of those things. We've come to you because we need you. And we need to hear from you this morning. Would you do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you brought your Bibles this morning, please open up to Psalm 87. 
I am not Jimmy Young. (laughs) Applause. You can applaud that. I'll applaud it. Very excited not to be Jimmy Young. I'm Les Newsom. Uh, Jimmy has asked me to uh, fill in in his stead. Um, I work for uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, Jimmy's uh, denomination, uh, in um, a campus ministry called Reformed University Fellowship, RUF for short. And uh, I have been there now for 11 years working with that organization and I'm always pleased to be able to come and to share with you a little bit about the ministry of RUF and all the things that are going on with it. Um, And also to thank you uh, because of your kindness to our ministry. You have... Uh, Grace Evan has been a financial supporter of this ministry since the very beginning. Uh, we are here. You make, <laughs> you make my life possible. Thank you. Uh, I really want to make sure that I always say thank you to you for that uh, as we continue to minister to students. We want to make certain that you know that the ministry of RUF is here on your behalf. We are an extension of you going to the college campus. Uh, that's why we are there. We long to know... And hope for that you will always rest assured that when your college student goes off to a campus, wherever they go, that you'll be able to call an RUF campus minister and have that minister uh, give you a call, uh, give your student a call, uh, meet with them and try to pastor them during those times of their college years. That's why we are, uh, that's why we're here. And it's always a pleasure to be here. But when I get, when I come to meet among you, I always look forward to have the opportunity to tell you a little bit about the reason why I've continued to work for RUF. Uh, I'm sticking with this organization for a couple of reasons, and uh, one of the big reasons is because of the core values of the organization, one of which I want to talk to you about this morning, and it's about the doctrine of the church, which is what I want to talk to you about this morning. Now, has there ever been a greater yawn inducer than that sort of entry, uh, introductory statement? This morning, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the church. Jimmy Latimer used to say this was the time in which you could slip your shoes off and get comfortable for a nap, right? Why would you ever want to talk about the doctrine of the church? I hope you understand why we want to look at that. The doctrine of the church is the doctrine of what it means for us to be together right now. As we gather here this morning, we are here with a a unique and unusual identity that rallies itself around a series of marks. And I would suggest to you that the Bible in many ways, from cover to cover, is about God's desire to produce a people. Not necessarily saved individuals, though he certainly does that. But the point of the Bible is to produce a body. Why? Well, we believe because God himself, in his own self-definition, is a community, is he not? We talk about why God created the universe. God did not create the universe because he was lonely. God created the universe out of the own excess of the community that he was in himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing in perfect eternal community. And so therefore, if he was going to create man in his image, it means that we've got to be together. God is making a group of people, a body of people, a body of people that have certain aspects. Perhaps 2005 might be the year of the resolution that you would make to learn more about why you're here, why you came here this morning. Psalm 87, I believe, gives us a window from the psalmist view 
into what we're looking at in terms of the doctrine of the church. I suggest to you that there are four things that we learn from Psalm 87 as we look through uh, and see if you can listen for them as we go through it. This is God's word to us. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is God's word. In the Old Testament, it'll help you when we look through these psalms to get a small little helpful uh, exegetical clue, if you will. In the Old Testament, when the word uh, Zion or Jerusalem is spoken of, it is not necessarily or sort of uh, reductionistically talking about a physical place or a physical city. I would argue that most of the best commentaries will explain that when the psalmist talks about Zion, he's talking about the people of God as they gather. The people of God, the community of the people of God as they gather. And of course in Psalm 87, or Psalm 87 it says that God loves the gates of Zion. That there is something about this place, the gathered people of God, that God loves to be. Where, where is God's favorite place to be in the universe? Answer, here among his people. Now, I know that sounds strange to talk about because we look and say to ourselves, well, I thought I was always taught that God was everywhere. That he was present everywhere. How can God be everywhere but say that he loves one place in particular? Well, the answer to that question is, I have no idea. But I want to take the text at face value. And just accept it for what it says, that there is something about, in the psalmist's mind, our gathering here, listen, listen, that is different from what you experience when you're sitting alone with your Bible. I didn't say better or worse, I said different. That this here is unique among us. And we're looking at it in a different way. But God loves this place. He wants to be among this this area, and not just loves to be here, but that he actually is sort of affectionate towards it. He says that God sets his foundation. He loves the gates of, and that glorious things are said of you. My friends, the first thing you need to know about the gathering of the church is that God adores his church as it gathers. It's his favorite place in the world. Here, among the other people of God, we can find that God adores his people in the most vivid way. We see the adoration of God in his most vivid way. His people are at home. There's affection. There's warmth here. And it also means that God dotes over his people. That's what the verse means. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Not glorious things are spoken of God, but glorious things are said of you. You recognize what it's, what it's saying here. God is suggesting that in heaven right now, Right this minute. That the God of the universe is doting over you. Look at those people down there. That's my favorite place to be. I'd rather be there than any other place. 
friend of mine was sitting in a, a little bakery, a little uh, popular bakery in Oxford downtown when I first got in town a couple of years ago. And he was sitting there on one particular morning, the bottle tree. Um, this is for my old Miss uh, contingency here. Uh, sitting in the bottle tree one morning, and he had his Bible open, sort of reading through his uh, Bible, just doing a little uh, studying that morning, nothing big. He wasn't causing a scene or anything. And at one point during the morning, an elderly man walked up to him and sort of tapped him on the shoulder. My friend sort of spun around, and the man looked at him and said, You know something? With this sort of silly grin on his face. He said, God has a picture of you in his wallet. And he walks around heaven just bragging on you and showing your picture all around in heaven. And then the man just sort of wandered off. <laughs> These kind of creepy things don't always happen in Oxford, but sometimes they do. And they make great sermon illustrations. But he looked up, and as, as cheesy as the story may sound, my friend walked away and said, you know, I thought about it and thought, that's not untrue. Is it untrue? It's not untrue to suggest that God actually would dote and brag over his people. And here's my question for you. Have you ever thought of God in that way? Has it ever occurred to you to think that, that, that you never get tired of talking about the thing which enamors you the most? And that the real heartbeat of the gospel, the real heartbeat about what the Bible is trying to get across to you, is the thought... That in Christ, He really does like you. Really does like you. Zephaniah 3.17 is probably one of the most sentimental statements in the whole Bible. Have you ever heard this? The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. Listen to this. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The God of the universe right now is singing love songs over you. I wonder how this rests upon the minds of people who don't do the kinds of things that I do for a living. But I have found in the few years that I've been doing ministry that this is, this is very hard to get across. And I would be a liar to say that I didn't grow up sort of wrestling with this idea, that the point about coming to church and my idea was, to, was hearing about how much my relationship to God depended on me. But what I find in the Scripture is that the, the hard thing to get into the soul, the hard thing to get into the mind, is how much His affections rest on you. That's the hard thing, and I've realized that it's the key to everything. Think about it. Isn't this the key to our wrestling with assurance? God, how do I know if you're really there? It's because my love for you is greater than you know. I'm convinced that this is the reason why I don't pray the way I should. Made a New Year's resolution about that. I'm going to pray more this year. You want to know why you don't pray? Because you don't think, at least I don't, I don't think when I bow my head to pray that God is glad to see me. I love to go to places where people are glad to see me. It's nice to come here because you're all so nice. You pat me on the back. If you're patronizing me, that's fine. I'll accept it any way I can get it. But I love to be in places where people know who I am and appreciate me. But most of the time when I bow my head, the first thought that I have in my mind is that God is looking at me going, <laughs> Oh, nice to have you now. <laughs> it's been a while, don't you think? You see the point? My friends, my prayer life suffers 
because I haven't gotten this idea in my mind that God has made His foundation among His people and He sits up and He dotes over you. That's the first point about the church. God loves this place. Second point goes like this. It's in those next, uh, in that next verse, uh, verse four. And you may have missed it the first time. Because I wonder how many times you hear things like that, the pronouncement that Jesus loves sinners, he loves screw-ups like me, no matter what I've done to bring into this room. And you hear that and you think to yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just lays on our hearts in a cold and a dead way. Why? Why is it that we hear those kind of things with such antipathy? Maybe it's because we missed verse 4 and verse 5. Because you look through that list for the first time and you might have passed right over it. Among those who mention me, I will mention Rahab, Babylon, Cush, Philistia, and Tyre. Now, who are those nations? Think about it. The first list is Babylon. Babylon is a synonym in the Bible for, for the most arrogant, rich, and debauched nations of their time. Secondly, we have uh, uh, um, Rahab. Rahab is actually a synonym for the word Egypt. Egypt was the, was the constant troubler of Israel. Of course, one of the most arrogant cities. Philistia? Philistines? These were the people that were constantly troubling Israel. The ones who were constantly uh, fighting them. Their sworn enemy. Tyre, of course, the, the, the rich city up there on the coast, known for its greed and its money-mongering. And then finally, Cush. Cush, the poverty-stricken African nation, right? Thought to be cursed by God because of their ignorance and lack of education. But guess what? These are the ones. <laughs> These are the ones that the Lord will write in the registers. In other words, the second thing that you have to understand about the church is that her members are God's former enemies. Now, bear with me. Nobody likes to talk like that. What do you mean, God's enemies? I mean, I had some problems before I started coming to church, but I wasn't his enemy. I mean, I never said things that bad. But the Bible doesn't characterize it in that way. The Bible says that prior to your conversion, my friends... You were the sworn enemies of God and that God viewed you in the way in which the Israelites viewed these people and the way in which you view your worst enemies. Perhaps the reason why our salvation doesn't mean anything to us is you don't know what you were saved from. We don't know the place from which we've been taken. There's a couple of things to be said from here. God's people contain his former enemies. My friends, the pronouncement that God loves you means so little is because we're not sure where we've, been came, where we've come from. That prior to God's pronouncement of affection, there rested upon all of our souls a pronouncement of doom. And my friends, the amount of joy that you experience at hearing that God has forgiven you will be directly proportional to the amount of danger you believed yourself to be in prior to that. My wife and I, some of you know, experienced what our plumber referred to as, words you never want to hear a plumber say, a catastrophic plumbing uh, situation in our house. I learned this. You don't want to hear those words. And it turns out that, you know, he comes in and they look and they're trying to find, we hear water running, we don't know what it is, there's a, there's a leak somewhere, maybe it's under the foundation. You love to hear the word foundation when you're a homeowner as well. And so he looks and says, well, the only way to do it is we've got to reroute the pipes all the way through the house, through the attic. We're going to do it that way. And it probably is going to cost somewhere around $5,000. 
Now, for some of you in this room, I, you know, I saw the car you drove up in, $5,000, probably a drop in the bucket. But for Ginger and me, campus ministry, of course, was not the get-rich-quick scheme that we thought that it was going to be. We were looking at our children thinking, how much could we get for this one? Uh, they're, they're of working age. We spent a weekend in, in, in a hole, literally moping around. What are we going to do? We take out a loan. What are we going to do? Until all of a sudden on Monday morning, we called one last opinion, right? Always go for the second opinion. Man came out, started walking around the house, looking around, poking around at things. Some strange man from New Albany of all places. And all of a sudden, we got around to the side of the yard. And he says, I think I hear something. He says, I think I hear the leak right here. And I said, I think I hear it too. Takes one shovel spade, does another one, and all of a sudden, psh, there's the leak right there. He goes to Home Depot, buys four screws, screws it in, and looks at me and says, it's fixed. So that'll be $125. And I said, I'd have paid you three times that much. You would have thought that Ginger and I had won the lottery for the next three days. We floated around the room. Actually, then we started thinking, how are we going to spend that $5,000 that we were going to spend? It's the way the mind works, isn't it? Do you see, though, that the amount of the debt is going to be directly proportional to the amount of joy that you experience when you find out that the debt was forgiven? My friends, until you begin to see yourself in the way in which the Israelites saw these people, it's not going to mean anything to you that he delights in his people. So the second thing is, is God's, God's church were his former enemies. But then thirdly, we see something else. We see that God's people were graciously adopted. Because that ought to be the next question on the plate. You look and say, how can God make those kinds of pronouncements? How can God sort of arbitrarily look at people who were as bad as those Philistines, who were those people, right? How can he look at those people and say, I'm going I'm to consider them to actually have been born in Jerusalem. They're going to be my people. I'm going to attach my name to them. Well, I think there's at least a couple of answers to this and a couple of different ways you can look at this. The first one is that it's God who establishes the relationship. Isn't it wonderful the way the passage reads? Of this one it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High will establish her. Answer to the question, how am I going to get in? How am I going to be counted among those people? Because God does it. Because it's His work. Or did you miss that? I remember my uh, uh, history of Christianity professor saying this in class one time. If you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, it's probably because you're looking for assurance in the wrong place. You're looking and you're taking a measure and a sounding device of your own soul when what you ought to be looking at is the, is the work and the pre-movement of God in your life. That it is His work on your behalf that got you where you are, not you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. How will I get in? You will get in because God is the one who will establish his people. But then secondly, there's another way of saying it, though. Another way of saying that if we are going to be a part of this group, part of Zion, it means that we were adopted into it. This one was born in Zion. Christians throughout the ages have kind of made a big deal about the doctrine of adoption. And I would argue that at the very heart of the doctrine of the church that we're looking at this morning is the doctrine of adoption. 
That the way in which we got in is that God sort of scooped us up in a place in which we couldn't do anything about it, about for ourselves, and took us as our own. I had a friend this summer, a uh, uh, family been trying to, to have kids for quite some time, um, and a very heartbreaking situation of trying to have children, and finally found a, a, a baby to adopt after three or four years of looking. And I got to be at the house when uh, the little boy came home to, her, uh, to his new family. And I have to be honest with you, this was, this was really a cool thing. <laughs> we all sat around and watched in wonder, and you couldn't not cry at this. Do you want to know why? Because you looked at the face of this child, and the first thought that, you, that, that raced across your mind was, I wonder what God saved this child from through no other action than his, than his parents' sovereign move into his life to scoop him up. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that adopted folk have a, a set of problems all their own. But listen, imagine what it is that God has saved that child from. We have a couple in our church down in Oxford who adopted a young little Chinese girl. And I'll be honest with you, every time little Marin comes running by me in church, it's hard to keep from getting emotional at that. To grow up as a female in mainland China? Do you know what she would have faced if she would have survived her childhood at all? And here she is, oblivious. (laughs) Living in the joy of parents who adore her, in a place that provides for all of her material needs. My friends, let me ask you the question. Have you ever heard the words, this one was born in Zion? Has that ever landed in your soul? To hear the thought and to think about the thought, I wonder where I would be right now had God not scooped me up. Some of you can tell some stories. Some of you can say, actually, I got a little bit of a taste of where I was headed before that landed in my soul. My friends, when we come to consider the church, the very heartbeat of it all is this thought that God came down and scooped up a very helpless people. That it was His initiative that worked in me in a way in which I couldn't work myself. This is one of the reasons why the Bible is going to get very upset. Jesus is going to get very upset if He finds that there's something in this body that gets... um, exclusive when jesus finds out that you as a pattern of your life or as a pattern of this church are excluding people on the basis of some of anything other than what his gospel has said about those people he he, he, he's not going to take that very well because when we look and we say good grief what are they doing here well, I'd, I'd go to that church, but it just seems like it's sort of become a church overrun by, by black people. I've heard those things come from all kinds of faithful church members. Isn't it interesting that Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour among the church? It's those people, and not to mention the poor people. <laughs> Where are the poor people among us? Let's be honest. My friends, here's what Jesus is saying about this body. Everybody comes in. Nobody gets their nose turned up at them. 
Not even the person who you look and you know what they've done. I know where they've been. Boy, if you knew what I knew about those people, you couldn't believe they're here. Where do you want them to be? My friends, this is a place where anybody comes. And so there can't be any process of exclusion among this place. It can't be. Jesus comes down and gets very upset at it. Well, let them worship with themselves. No, they worship here among you because you were accepted in just that way. My friend, the Christian church is about bringing in those kinds of people because the, the Bible believes that in this place, is where, that this is the place where evangelism happens. Evangelism is not contained in a one-on-one sort of confrontational conversation. Evangelism happens as you are the body and are functioning as the body and are caring for each other as the body and giving away all of your money to the body. Yes, I said it. Jimmy can't say it. I can. But this is the place. This is one of the reasons why our church fathers used to look at the doctrine of the church and say that this was what that this was where real ministry happened in this place. It's very interesting. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the, uh, uh, the Septuagint, there is the word mother inserted in, verse, in the first half of verse 5. So that in the New English Bible translates it this, this way. <clears throat> and Zion shall be called a mother in whom, uh, in, in whom men of every race are born. Isn't that interesting? I believe that, uh, that Paul in Galatians 4.26 was thinking about verses like this when he said, For Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, the Jerusalem that is spiritual, the real gathered people of God, the church, is free and she is our mother. In other words, Christians throughout the ages have gotten to where they call the church their mother. So much so that Cyprian, early church father, was quoted as saying this. And you're not going to believe this. You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. In other words, the idea of being a Christian and not being a member of a church is is contradictory in the minds of most early Christians. Why? Because they knew what it meant to be the adopted people of God. Don't believe me? I'm going to offer you a fourth point. Not only do we see that God adores the church, not only do we see that the church are his former enemies, not only do we see that God graciously adopts his people, but fourthly and finally, we see that God rejoices over his people or that God's people rejoice over him and over each other. Now look, follow me for just one second. One last point in verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Now let me ask you a question. Who is the you referring to? Who is the you? All of my springs are in you. That's a good thing to say. All of my fountains, all of the fountains of my life, all of the things that drive my life, that refresh me spiritually are in you. Who is you? There's only two choices if you look through the psalm. On the one hand, it could be God, right? We've looked and said the Lord records as he writes in the registers. Okay, well, that would make me think that as a Christian, I should look and say that all of the fountains of my spiritual life come in you, O oh God. Oh, God, my fountains are in you. And that's kind of what the people get. People gather together. Uh, when they gather together, that's what we say. That's why we sang this morning on the things, is we're coming along to tell God how much our fountains are in you. Or you could read the verse this way. All of my springs are in you, O city of God. In other words, all of my fountains of joy are in the church. 
In other words, when I come here, this is where I find all my spiritual needs met. Now, my question to you is, which is it? Just to give you a little hint, the commentators are absolutely divided. Half of them say that they're talking about God. Half of them think that the psalmist is talking about the church. Which is it? What if it's both? And i got at least one commentator to say this. What if the ambiguity in that little pronoun is purposeful? In other words, what if the difference between God working and the church working is a whole lot closer in God's mind and in the spiritual people of the Bible's mind than it is in our mind. You see what I'm saying? I want to argue with you that it's very close to that in Jesus' mind. Do you remember when Saul is on his way to Damascus? Saul is assumed to be Paul. And he's knocked off of his horse or his camel or whatever by the light. And he sits there and all of a sudden the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, pardon me for the, uh, for the insult, but Jesus, Saul wasn't persecuting you. He was persecuting your church. But you see, in Jesus' mind, the church and me are the same. It's the same thing. Obviously, even when he was here in Matthew 25, Jesus says there's going to come this day where he comes down. And he looks at people and he says, oh, blessed are you because you took care of me when I was sick and you, and you fed me when I was hungry and you clothed me when I was naked and da 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 and the people don't get it. They're looking around going, oh, when did we do that? What are you talking about? When did we do any of these things? And he says, such as you have done unto the least of the brethren, you have done it to me. In other words, the line between dealing with God and dealing with God's people is a whole lot thinner and grayer in God's mind than it is in ours. We are the most sophisticated Gnostics, are we not? Well, you know, I don't want to deal with those people. You know, I, God and I, we worship here in my heart, in my mind. This is where my relationship with God is. No, it's not. At least not in the Bible. The Bible can't even conceive of your spiritual life as sort of some, some one-on-one, disembodied, purely theoretical mental experience. Where God wants you is in the messy trenches with that person in the pew next to you who drives you crazy every time they show up in the doors. He wants you sort of looking and saying, okay, I'll write another check if you would just keep a job this time. He wants you there. He wants you sort of sitting and listening to the 57th conversation about how that single person can't seem to hold down a relationship. That is the place. It reminds me of the old joke. It's not a very funny joke. I'll warn you ahead of time. About the guy in the, in, in the flood, right? He's standing out there in front of his yard and, the, and, and a truck comes by and says, Sir, save yourself from the flood. It's coming. Uh, and, and the man looks and goes, No, I know the flood's coming, but, but God's going to save me. I know that God's going to rescue me. I believe and I trust Him. The truck drives off. All of a sudden the floodwaters come on in until finally the floodwaters get so high he's got to climb up on his roof. And then a boat comes by and says, Sir, hop in the boat, man. Save yourself from the flood. The man says, No, I'm trusting in God. He's going to be the one who's going to come and save me and deal with me. Suit yourself. The boat floats off. Finally, the floodwaters come and get him up to his neck. And he's looking around. And a helicopter comes and throws down a rope and says, Grab the rope and save yourself. And the man says, No. With his last gasping breath says, I'm trusting in God to save me. And finally, the, the waves, the waters caps, uh, take him over and he dies and goes to heaven. And there, standing at the pearly gates, he looks at St. Peter and says, What happened? 
I mean, come on, was there ever a more faithful witness to you? I was trusting you in the face of certain death, and you let me die. What kind of witness is that? And Peter looks at the band and says, we sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. What more do you want? Well, maybe it was mildly funny. I don't know, maybe chuckles of laughter. But my friends, here's the point. What if God's working in your life? We've prayed for it. God, teach me patience. Teach me patience. And then there's that annoying person that we have to deal with at the church. When are they going to go away? <laughs> well, which do you want? Do you want to learn about patience or do you want the guy to go away? Because the two of them may be the same thing. God, bring me comfort. Bring me comfort. And all of a sudden, the door knocks. It's right, wasn't it? Wasn't that the best comfort? Wasn't the best comfort when we were going through hard times with the loss of loved ones? Wasn't it the body that put our souls back together? Wasn't it those words that people said that someone had come and you had taken up words, that they had fashioned words and they gave them to you and you drank them and you touched them and you felt someone's hug and it was tangible and God was not far off. He was there. It's in that handshake. It's in that hug that you give to each other when you come, everyone. That is where he is. Our God is so selfless that he does not begrudge himself to be manifested among his people. Are you the hand of Christ in someone's life this morning? But more importantly, and I'll finish with this, are you a member of a church? (laughs) Church membership. Is there something more mundane to finish up with with an ending illustration? Yes, church membership. And it's too easy right now to say things like to ourselves, well, now, what are you asking, Les? Do you mean, am I a Christian? Or do you mean, have I gone through some sort of official church membership process? And my answer to that question is, in the Bible's mind, it's both. Because the Bible doesn't conceive of you as a Lone Ranger Christian. It only conceives of you as a Christian in community with each other. And I mean a bound, annoying community where these elders have the gumption to come up to you and sit down and say, well, so how are you doing spiritually? What right does he have? Where someone can come in and look and say, boy, you look like like you just need some help. I don't need any help. Are you a member of the church? My friends, the least I think that we can do in honoring the beauty of the doctrine of the church, is to give some kind of allegiance to it with our time and our talents and our membership. Because there, Jesus says, you're going to find me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sorry because we were blind. We just didn't realize. We didn't realize that we've been asking for you and asking for you and asking for you and you kept sending your people. (laughs) But now, now we see and now we understand. And so we ask that you would be patient with us and allow us, give us new eyes. Give us eyes by which we look at the people of God in a different way. And that, Father, we might even go so far as to, to join, to stop dating the church and to marry her the way that you did. And that, Father, we might give ourselves We might give ourselves, give our time, give our energies, give our spiritual work to the gathering of the believers in this place and at this time. Because it doesn't seem as if there would be something more noble than that. To turn it into something that is beautiful, that is a slice of heaven on earth, 
And that by energizing us here, you would transform the whole of culture as your kingdom pushes back. Father, change us, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.